This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. When Gil invited me to give a talk, he asked me to speak about um, what we call outreach, about engaged Buddhism, because as I just stepped on as abbot, before I was abbot, I was at the San Francisco Zen Center. I was the person in charge of the outreach programs, and I did that for many years. And um, and I think Gil has aspirations <laughs> for you. <laughs> uh, so I will talk about that, but I, I want to come at it sort of indirectly, or maybe not so indirectly. Um, you know, in some ways you could say that our practice is about um, dropping the self or seeing through the self and are not clinging to the self. And then in another way you could say our practice is expanding the self to include all being, you know, Maybe the first one would be wisdom and the second one would be compassion. And then traditionally the, the Dharma is that they, they balance each other. You know, they, they, they inform each other and they are in a symbiotic relationship. This morning I, I was talking to someone at the San Francisco Zen Center um, and he was in a state of distress. He had a, a cancer diagnosis about a month ago, and then he had some further tests, and the further tests revealed that the, the, his condition was worse than originally diagnosed. And, and this person has been um, doing hospice work for quite a while, has studied chaplaincy, has uh, been with many people through the process of dying. And here they were, distraught, as, as he said, not knowing which end is up. Um, so this is the fierceness of impermanence who of us is not subject to that fierceness Um, probably in this room there are uh, at least one person in a not so different situation from the person I talked to this morning. No? And how does practice support us under those conditions? How does our practice support others under those kinds of conditions? Um, excuse me. 
thought I'd turn that off. Well, that's the first time that's ever happened. kind of ironic because I usually leave my phone off most of the time. <laughs> um, so how do we respond to this? This inevitable uh, consequence of all of our lives. How do we respond to the, in some ways, what seems like the dysfunction of our society, you know, as it careens along, uh, and the fallout of it is that there's so many ways that we suffer collectively as a society are neglected, under-supported, are related to in a way that just doesn't seem skillful. Um, How do we respond to that? Individually and collectively. Um, You know, in, in the seven factors of awakening, the, the, the first one is sati, mindfulness. And then the second one is usually translated as investigation. You know? and my own understanding is that within the process of meditation, you know, that you bring forth an open attention and noticing of what's happening and then engage whatever arises. So it's that kind of investigation. It's not so much that we set our minds to work figuring something out or analyzing something or concluding something. And yet, in the process of living our lives, in the process of being in an impermanent world, in the process of being part of a society that collectively struggles, you know, the the same way each one of us struggle. Each one of us is trying to negotiate, you know, an intention that that is not dominated or dictated by our fears or our aggressions or our desires. To me, it just seems like we do the same thing collectively. Sometimes it looks like we're not really doing a very good job. <laughs> um, and I want to... I want to come at the individual and then move from there to the collective. There's... Um, a Buddhist sutra that goes by the impressive title uh, Mulamajamaka Kakarita. 
And, he, and here's part of a, a verse from it. It says, What language is expresses is undone because the object, or when the object of mind is undone, unborn and unceased like nirvana. This is the suchness of things. Um, it's, uh, this uh, sutra, if you could call it that, was written by Nagarjuna, a famous Buddhist uh, thinker and practitioner. Um, Each of us in our own minds conjures up descriptions, definitions of what's happening. We infuse it with desire and aversion and ambivalence. And we struggle with that creation. In the simple practice of mindfulness is to see it, is to feel it. In a way, with the steadfastness that we see it as a display of the nature of impermanence and a display of the nature of our shared humanity. In our practice, within this steadfastness, that that we see the utility and the function of both wisdom and compassion. Because surely, as we see the struggles inside our own being, as, as we see the way in which we desire and try to push away um, and get confused about them both and what they create, um, we see the potency of our own habit energy. And we see the deep desire for aliveness, the deep desire not to be stuck in that way. Hmm. And it's that very desire not to be stuck, that very desire to be alive, that draws us forth with the intentionality and perseverance of our practice. And and this quality, which is the third factor of awakening, vidya, in its initiatory phase, persistence, diligence. In its engaged phase, it becomes that energetic aliveness of the moment. You know, it occurred to me about a week ago 
when a friend of mine was telling me rather jokingly that every Saturday they have to have a mocha from Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) They go to yoga, and then after yoga, they go to Starbucks and have a mocha. (laughs) And they said, it's the perfect combination. (laughs) (laughs) And it occurred to me that this aliveness, this kind of energy, is such an attractive proposition in our lives. And and, uh, we we search out something to stimulate that way of being, to stimulate that energy. How else could there be a Starbucks in every third corner? (laughs) And of course, the cautionary tale there is that part of our wish to control our environment, to control our experience, um, we want the world, we want this equation of being alive to function on our terms, which it doesn't, <laughs> but it doesn't stop us from trying. <laughs> you know, as a meditation teacher, you know, there are wonderful gifts you receive. You know, because you get to see not only your own practice but the practice of uh, many people. And how much, one thing you learn is that when this energy arises in, the, in, the, in our meditation, often in retreat, how validating, confirming, encouraging it is. You know? there, there, there's something in us that... Um, resonates with that deeper, fuller feeling of aliveness. Um, Often when it arises, whatever the object is, becomes more dramatically itself. And in a way, this stanza from Nagarjuna is talking about that. When language, what language expresses is undone. When the narrative, when the story starts to quiet. When the object of mind is undone. When the, when the way it's reified, the way it's turned into a fixed object, the way it's being held is allowed to flow. When that starts to happen, uh, the moment is just itself, timelessly. Not as a fixed state of being, but just as an energetic flow. Unborn and unceased, like nirvana. 
This is the suchness of things. This is the nature of each moment. So we can enter this in our meditation. We can enter this with our willingness to drop the story and return to bare awareness of body and breath of the moment. We can enter this discovering the skillful yogic relationship to sati, mindfulness, investigation, and energy. And in the, in the classic formulation of the seven factors, beautifully, the next one is joy. It's this strange combination, this strange dilemma of our human life. This fierce request to turn towards the way things are. To not simply insist upon your story about them, but to have that extraordinary courage and honesty to just be as it is. Which is not easy, as I bore witness to this morning. And the person I was talking to has been a Dharma practitioner 10, 15 years. It's not like he didn't know the Dharma. Just in the potency, in the ferocity of the moment. But still, that's our practice. We sit down, and our mind wanders, and we come back. We stand up, we face a world that's filled with turmoil and struggling, and we bring the same intentionality to that world. individually and collectively. So what did I do? I bore witness to his pain, to his suffering. I was there with him. Compassion to be with suffering. Um... in some way that I can't quite remember right now, as kindly, as caringly, as gently as I could, I said, this is how it is. For you and all of us. So how can 
this way of engaging being alive, how can it saddle us? How can it open our hearts rather than toss us into distress, close our hearts, protect ourselves, distract ourselves? Um, This is what we watch and study in our meditation. And then we watch and study how we carry it into the different aspects of our world, of our life, of our relationships. And one of the beautiful ways, I think beautiful ways we can do that, is to be of service. In, in many ways, as we come together and we form Dharma centers, you know, whether they're Vipassana or Zen or Tibetan or whatever, there's, there's a sense of um, being like a pioneer. You know, we, we're coming together to create something. This afternoon I was hosting a delegation, just by coincidence, a delegation from a Chinese, a Chinese monastery. They were from in Beijing, near Beijing. And, uh, you know, realizing, oh, this Dharma is, uh, pervades the whole world. And, and still, within our own group, our endeavor to bring it into existence, to have it thrive. Um, maybe like our individual lives, leaving us feeling that but we're, we're just coming into being. We're just discovering how to lay the foundation in our own lives, in our own sangha, and the world is so so needy. There's so many ways there's suffering in our world, you know. And yet turning towards that neediness turning towards that suffering and letting our vow take um, move into action, letting our vow manifest as being of service, letting our vow stimulate and direct our caring and our compassion. It's a um, a powerful thing. It's a powerful way to be. And as I said earlier, yes, maybe we could even say, you know, that in the time of Shakyamuni and 
a significant part of the time afterwards. The emphasis was on seeing through the self, dropping the agitations and distractions that obscure the path. But this other Dharma gate of letting the self include the whole world. You know, it occurs to me at times the, the part of the affliction of our society is that we have so much information. You know, if we're inclined, we can know of the suffering across the globe. You, know, you can know how many wars, how many tragedies, how, how, how many profound, how much profound injustice is being perpetrated on any day. And that it leaves us with, maybe with a sense of impotence. We can't really do much. You know? um, but I think our intention, our vow of practice in that regard, it's not so different from our vow of practice sitting on our cushion. We sit down and invariably things come up. And we keep sitting. And we return to our cushion and sit some more when the occasion presents itself. And we bring our vow into our lives. And again, the complexities of our life, the demands of our life. Um, And what we discover is that our practice really doesn't have much to do with success. We don't conquer the world. We don't even conquer the self. We, we, we just see it. We, we, we just discover what it is, how to be in a way that causes us less suffering and causes others less suffering. Like, what did I do when I was f- faced with the profound suffering of someone who has received a very difficult prognosis. Just to be present. Just to not stay in some cocoon called the self that has within it its preoccupations, its fears and anxieties about its own well-being. To let compassion, generosity, and caring help me go beyond that and be with another human being. Not because I had some great 
solution to his predicament. The very act of compassion, the very act of presence. You know, this is what we can offer each other. And the extraordinary nature of it is that when we do, everyone benefits. So how do we enter the world with this kind of spirit, this kind of attitude? Um, How within our pioneering, still forming Dharma groups, how do we express that collectively? And I think part of how we do that is we take care of each other. No? As I say, within this group, there, there are many needs. There's suffering. Um, if you think about it, even as you know, creating for each other a shared sense of kindness and generosity, it creates an environment that facilitates mindfulness. It's, it's a benign environment in which we can relax. We can let down our defenses. We can be more honest about who we are and how we are and what's coming up for us. And, um, and I would say, formidable a proposition as it might seem, that to enter the world with that same way um, brings forth a similar kind of experience of being in the world. When I was uh, leading the outreach program, um, I initiated a lot of uh, different projects in prisons, in drug rehab, in homelessness, in hospice. And, you know, my experience was that in all of those environments, I met wonderful people people whose kindness and dedication to caring for others just astounded me, you know? And, you know, sometimes the orderlies on a ward, and just to realize this person has been doing this for 15 years, and still they do it with an open heart and a generous spirit. even in prisons, you know? Yes. There are prison guards who have said to me they wanted the prisoners to suffer. They thought that was part of the system. 
One, one person actually said, I, I resent you offering them stress reduction. And the sheriff um, suggested we offer stress, and we did offer stress reduction to all the prison guards. So even though our resources are limited, and you may say maybe the impact of what we can offer is limited. I think that one we can question. You never know, you know. You never know the impact of what you offer, you know. How it can touch someone and enliven something within them that helps them through something enormously difficult for them. So even though there may seem to be this small resource for an enormous problem, um, just to bring forth the intention, to bring forth that willingness to let a way of being that contradicts the sense of isolation, limitation, and scarcity that can come up within our society. You know, in, in San Francisco, we have many uh, visible signs of homelessness. You know, there's on any given night, depending upon how you count it, there's about 5,000 people on the street. Um, can those of us have a bed, who have a bed to go home and sleep in and, and shelter, can we keep our hearts open and keep a place for those 5,000 people in our hearts? Um, in some ways, as formidable a challenge as staying fully present through a period of meditation. No? And in some ways, as instructive and supportive a practice. So, you know, I want to say, I have no idea what you should do as a community. (laughs) I know I've gone into many environments and and done things. um, uh, But it seems to me each environment, each situation... has its own particularity, you know? And that really, 
the smartest thing you can do is pay close attention and learn as much as you can. I mean, often I ask myself, well, what can practice offer this situation? You know? And how could that be given? How could that be delivered, expressed in this environment? Um, and then there's a wonderful phrase in Buddhism called identity action. And part of what I've been talking about is how can I go beyond the cocoon of self and enter this person's world? Who, not, who, who is not imprisoned in some ways by some, or feels imprisoned by some sense of limitation? Some sense of restriction. Who is not struggling in some way to substantiate or ripen their own sense of belonging, of being at home. Who is free from the fierceness of impermanence? I think these contemplations, you know, when you look at the early suttas and you, you see within them, you know, that these contemplations were there as aids to the monks and the nuns. And something hasn't changed, you know, that our society still presents the same problems and asking us as practitioners not to shy away but to turn towards them and to realize it's not simply that we have something to give but we will also receive we will also be supported um, So, so I didn't leave time for questions. Well, maybe one question, but I figured you can save your questions for Gil. (laughs) (laughs) Um, hmm. Oh, let me finish with a little piece of a poem, which I forgot to read. It's by Mary Oliver. What is the name of the deep breath I would take over and over for all of us? What is the name of the deep breath I would take over and over for all of us? Call it whatever you want. It is happiness, and in another way, it's to enter the fire.
What is the name of the deep breath I would take over and over for all of us? Call it whatever you want. It is happiness and another way to enter the fire. I would say this is our practice. To suffer less and be happier more. And to turn towards this shared human condition. And, And I would say they're the same practice. They're both asking us to go beyond some small self. They're both asking us to open up to a greater being. Um, So, thank you for listening to all of that. (laughs) I hope... um, I hope in your discussion with Gil that um, <laughs> some, some spark, uh, some inspiration will arise for you. I, w- I would also say this, that uh, of the different um, outreach projects I have been involved in, uh, not, not only did I feel like I met I had the good fortune to meet and be with um, wonderful people. But I also felt deeply instructed about how, what was important in life and, and how to um, support and be supported. Uh, I do want to say that. You know, at times people would say, oh, how can you do hospice work? It's so depressing. Um, One of the great gifts of hospice work is it teaches you how to live. You know, it teaches you how precious life is and how precious um, we are. How precious we are to each other. You know, guess what? When you're dying... You're not worrying so much about whether you're going to get a new car this year, but you are deeply grateful to hold the hands of the people you love. Okay. Thank you very much.